After the roundtable, I chatted with Dr. Geller, and he began our conversation by providing an overview of the program he runs in Pittsburgh. We see approximately 250 new HCC patients per year. Many times the patients come with imaging studies but won't yet have a biopsy. And so the prime directive or the number one issue is to identify the tumor type, stage them with the evaluation. The evaluation will consist of an outpatient clinic visit with a CT scan imaging triphasic CT scan or a gadolidium MRI contrast study a physical examination, a history and physical exam, and then blood work. We do a hepatitis screen looking for hepatitis A, B, and C as a routine part of that, and then we look at tumor markers. Typically for a suspect liver cancer, we'll look at three liver tumor markers, CEA, alpha-fetoprotein, and CA19-9. The best tumor marker for primary liver cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma, is alpha-fetoprotein, but that is helpful when it's elevated, but you can flip a coin. It's 50-50. About 50% of the hepatomas or hepatocellular carcinoma in the United States have an elevated AFP. So when it's 10,000, it's very helpful. But when it's normal, it shouldn't lull you to a sense of complacency because half the patients with liver cancer have a normal alpha-fetoprotein. It's very important for a medical oncologist to understand that when we're dealing with primary liver cancer, HCC, 80 to 85 percent of the time that arises in the setting of background cirrhosis. So we're really treating with these patients two diseases. One is the liver cancer and the second is cirrhosis. And it's important because more often than not, it's the degree of cirrhosis or reserve of the liver, the strength of the background liver that determines how much treatment these patients can have. HCC incidence is on the rise, and it's probably estimated that in 2007 we'll see about 18,000 cases. I think that's an underestimate, and it's more likely 20 to 25,000. It's estimated that there's 4 million Americans infected with hepatitis C virus, so that's the primary risk factor in the United States, followed by alcoholic cirrhosis. With better screening with our hepatologists, and this is an important message to send, I think gastroenterologists have an obligation and responsibility. They have patients with known hepatitis C. They need to screen them. And I would think the standard of care would be at least once a year, CT scan or MRI imaging of the liver, as well as an alpha-fetoprotein blood test. What about ultrasound? Ultrasound is okay, but is not nearly as good for picking up small, subtle lesions compared to a contrast CT or MRI scan. That is the gold standard. So I think it is the standard of care to get in a patient with known hepatitis infection to get a CT or MRI scan. Can you kind of go through the local treatment strategies that are available for HCC, how they're utilized, and how you select them for patients? Okay. The treatment strategies will fall into the extent of the tumor. So for patients that have a small HCC identified early, and we're seeing more and more of these because of the screening for hepatitis, and this would be typically a hypervascular marble-sized blush in the liver that measures one to one and a half or up to two centimeters in size, then I think a local therapy, typically in that situation, I'll start with laparoscopic radiofrequency ablation, and I'll go in similar to a laparoscopic gallbladder removal with three or four Band-Aid size incisions. It's a general anesthesia. Usually the patient stays overnight in the hospital and goes home the next day, and with ultrasound guidance, we can biopsy to prove the tumor and ablate it. One of the challenges in these small tumors is confirming the diagnosis. Percutaneously, the lesion may be invisible by ultrasound, and they can't see it well, but if I go on laparoscopic we have the ultrasound probe right on the liver. We can identify the lesion more readily. If it's a subcentimeter, I'll just observe them because we know that liver cancer is a slow to medium-growing tumor. Doubling time is typically four to six months. 
So this situation where if we have a five or six millimeter lesion, it's too small to identify, too small to biopsy, probably even too small to ablate at that point. We'll leave it alone, and I'll say come back in three months, and we'll get CAT scans every three months because we know with that screening interval we're not going to miss. In three months, it won't go from five millimeters to 10 centimeters in size. You mentioned laparoscopic ablation. What about laparoscopic resection? Laparoscopic resection is a growing field. I've been one of the pioneers in the United States, and I performed more than 180 laparoscopic liver resections in the last five years. That's an excellent option for peripheral small tumors, but they need to be near the edge of the liver. Cirrhotic livers in general don't tolerate a major hepatic lobectomy. So if it's a superficial lesion that I can do a laparoscopic resection on, uh, typically the left lateral segment of the liver or the anterior right segment, segments 5, 6 on the right side or segments 2 and 3 in the left lateral segment, laparoscopic resection could be done. Ideally, if it's deeper in the liver, I'll do laparoscopic ablation. So I'll consent the patients for both, laparoscopic resection or ablation. The key in cirrhosis is to stay laparoscopic. We have much less liver decompensation if we don't open the abdomen because we don't interrupt the collaterals that the liver has done. And to what extent is laparoscopic intervention available across the country right now? Laparoscopic ablation is probably more readily available than resection. Resection is still the gold standard with liver cancer. While I have patients out, I started our ablation program eight years ago, and I have patients out eight years. Beyond five years, we typically think of a cure for them. However, I also have patients that have recurred with ablation, so resection is the gold standard because you remove the entire cancer and there's normal liver around it. I don't think that there's widespread availability yet of laparoscopic resection. I've been teaching courses. I had the first course in the United States four years ago for laparoscopic liver resection surgery, and actually I have three courses this winter that I'm teaching. So we're seeing growth of laparoscopic resection. This requires a lot of skill on the surgeon's part. You have to be both a minimally invasive surgeon and a hepatic surgeon, so it requires training in two disciplines. In this clinical situation, how much of an advantage is it to go laparoscopically? I think it's a huge advantage for the patient for the reasons that it's much less stress on the background liver and they don't decompensate. Typically, it's overnight in the hospital. We don't usually see development of ascites. It's certainly much less morbid for the patient, a lot less pain, similar to any laparoscopic procedure. There's advantages. But the most important issue is you can't just give them a laparoscopic operation and sacrifice oncologic principles. So I tell patients, you're getting the same operation. I'm cutting in the same location with the same tumor margin. It's just a matter of having a big incision or having three or four Band-Aid size incisions with much less pain and postoperative complications. What about transplant? Liver transplant is an excellent treatment modality for HCC for the following reason, that 80 to 85 percent of the hepatomas arise in a cirrhotic liver, and it's the cirrhotic liver that's the precancer condition. So with liver transplantation, we're removing the cancer and removing the precancer condition with the cirrhosis. There's approximately 17,500 patients currently on the wait list in the United States for liver transplant, but there's only 5,000 cadaver organ donors per year. So there's a huge shortage. Therefore, we have to ration the livers. And the patients that get the bonus points on the liver transplant list are stage 2 hepatomas. So it's one cancer up to 5 centimeters in size or three tumors 
up to three centimeters in size for the maximum, one up to five or three less than three. Those are stage two. So if you're a one or one and a half centimeter tumor, you're only stage one. You need to be larger than two centimeters and smaller than five. And that makes you a stage two. If you have a seven centimeter tumor or if you have four cancers in your liver, then you're stage three. You exceed the meld. The liver transplantation is prioritized in the United States and organs are allocated based upon a point system called MELD, M-E-L-D. It's a six to 40 point scale. And the stage two hepatomas get 22 bonus points. So, if there were enough livers available, you know, as many as we needed, how then would transplant be utilized? That would be the ultimate goal, but we're a long way away from that. If we had an unlimited supply of organ donors, then we would see liver transplantation as a significantly increased treatment option for the patients. We do offer live donor liver transplantation where a spouse, a friend, a sibling, or a child can donate, but that's made a small impact because probably less than 10% of all liver transplants performed in the United States have a suitable organ donor. What's the procedure there? The procedure there is that about 95% of the time, it's the entire right lobe of the liver is donated. So, for example, a wife gives half of her liver to her husband or vice versa. And that carries risk for the donor, yet in spite of those risks to the donor, patients and families will seek this because for many of them, it's their best option or life-saving. It's also geographic, meaning that if you live in New York Miami, Chicago, Los Angeles, where you have three or four liver transplant centers competing for the organ donors, the 22 bonus points for a cadaver liver with a stage 2 hepatoma do not commandeer you the liver, the organ donor, because patients are getting those livers that have MELT scores in the 30s. But if you live in Iowa or other locations, you may get on the list and get a cadaver organ, a whole liver, in about 30 days, 30 to 45 days. So it's also, it's not widely discussed, but geography is very important in the United States in determining what your wait list is or how likely are you going to be near the top of list and get your predicted wait time. Therefore, patients, gastroenterologists, medical oncologists, they need to understand these issues so they can educate the patients, and they need to inform them that based upon your location, if you have the ability to go to another city and get listed, that's one option. Or another option would be if you live in a city and you're not going to get a liver transplant anytime soon, then live donor may be your best option. What about local temporizing procedures and patients waiting for transplant? How do you approach that? If a patient is on the list with a predicted wait time less than three months, then I think we don't need any local temporizing procedure. However, if the predicted wait time is greater than three months on the list, then we talk about bridge therapy, giving a treatment modality that will buy time for the patient. And those treatment modalities we have... There's really four options. One would be radiofrequency ablation for a tumor in the 2 to 4 centimeter range. The limit of size that we can ablate is about 4 to 5 centimeters. There's no ablation technology that can actually ablate a 6, 7, or 8 centimeter tumor with reliability, so no baseballs. We can ablate marble-sized tumors and golf ball-sized tumors. And we like to stay minimally evasive, laparoscopic or percutaneous radiofrequency ablation. A second bridge therapy would be ethanol injection, percutaneous ethanol injection, injected with a very fine needle with minimal morbidity, but that's only good for small tumors. In the United States, for the most part, radiofrequency ablation is selected over ethanol ablation. In Europe, ethanol ablation is used more commonly. 
The third bridge therapy would be chemoembolization, which is giving small punt microscopic sponge particles combined with chemotherapy, intrahepatic via arterial approach like a femoral angiogram. That can be done, and that usually treats half the liver as a local regional therapy, either the right side or the left half of the liver, depending upon where the tumor is located. The fourth bridge therapy would be internal radiation with yttrium-90 radioactive glass bead. Then there's two products called Therospheres and Surspheres. And we've treated approximately 200 patients in Pittsburgh with the yttrium-90 radioactive glass bead. So we'll use one of those bridge therapies to buy time depending upon the individual characteristics of the patient's tumor. What about systemic therapy, chemotherapy, or now maybe serafinib? Right. Up until recently, there was no proven effective systemic chemotherapy for hepatocellular carcinoma, but Joseph Uve or Lovett presented at the ASCO meeting data on the Phase three SHARP trial, which is a randomized study looking at best supportive care in 300 patients versus serafimab or Nexavar in 300 patients, and it was the first study showing a very positive effect where survival was increased by 2.8 months, going from 7.9 to 10.7 months, so almost a three-month survival advantage. Overall, there was an increase in survival in the patients that received the Nexavar drug versus the placebo. So we do have this modality, but we're only in our infancy for clinical trials. And part of our research at Pittsburgh, we have two trials planned for the use of Nexavar. The patients that were treated were advanced liver cancer, patients that had tumors that were either 70% of them or three-quarters of the patients treated were not transplant candidates because they had tumor with gross vascular invasion or extrahepatic spread of the tumor. So I think in the future, we're going to see expanding roles for Nexavar, but we need to take them one at a time and be done in the setting of randomized clinical trials. Can you talk a little bit more about those two studies? Yes, both are under IRB review right now. One study is combining Nexavar, which is an oral agent typically given 400 milligrams orally twice a day, with standard chemoembolization. So we're taking our best treatment mode, and this is for inoperable, non-operable, non-transplantable hepatomas, the advanced stage 3s and 4s, which is probably 75% of patients that at screening identification, and probably only 20% to 25% now of patients are eligible for a surgical modality, resection, ablation, or transplant. Three-quarters of the patients we see are already late stage, three or four, and therefore have to go into a non-operative treatment modality. Our best treatment, two randomized studies worldwide, one in Europe and one in Asia, have shown that chemoembolization is effective. And so now we'd be looking to combine Nexovar with chemoembolization to see if we can boost response rates. Because even in the best of hands, response rates to chemoembolization is only 40 to 50%. So what's the study? Is this phase two? This would be exactly a phase two study looking at chemoembolization plus Nexovar. If we see improved response rates above historical controls, then would move to phase three, which would be chemoembolization alone versus chemoembolization plus Nexovar. What's the other study? The other study is a phase two study that we are just now submitting to the IRB using Nexovar in the adjuvant setting post-liver transplant. We're able, for those patients that undergo liver transplant for known or pathologically identified hepatomas in the explanted liver, we can identify certain high-risk factors for recurrence, such as multifocal tumors, the presence of gross vascular invasion on the pathology specimen, and we're also looking at genotyping where we do a DNA microarray analysis of mutations in the cancers and 
are able to predict a subset that are likely to recur. So we want in those patients that are high risk by any of those features, multifocal, vascular invasion, or poor genotyping, that we would like to put them on adjuvant next of our post-liver transplant and see if recurrence rates are lower than predicted based on historical controls. Again, is this study phase two? Phase two. And what are you expecting or thinking in terms of the issue of serafinib plus the post-transplant drugs? Do you think there might be a problem there? Nobody knows, but in general, the morbidity from serafinib or Nexavir is well tolerated. The biggest grade 3, 4 toxicity seen in the SHARP randomized phase 3 study was about 8 to 10% incidence of hand-foot syndrome, as well as GI, gastrointestinal toxicity. So we know what the predicted side effects of the immunosuppressive drugs are. There are some that cause GI toxicity, such as CELSEP, so we would avoid those. But in general, we can usually get patients down to monotherapy with tricrolimus or FK506. And I think that that probably would be well tolerated with the Nexavar. You said, I guess in your center, 20 to 25% of these patients are eligible for curative resections. But what about nationally? Do we know what the numbers are? I would say nationally it's less than that. The reason that we see a slight increase in the potential for curative is because we have a team of seven hepatologists and we have a huge hepatitis screening program where we screen these patients twice a year and we pick up a higher incidence at early stage. But nationally, I I would say that probably only 15 to 20% of all patients at the national level in the United States are caught early enough that they're eligible for a surgical approach. What's the potential there in terms of adjuvant therapy? If you kind of take a step back and look at who dies from HCC, what fraction of those people start out getting attempts at cure and then recur as opposed to presenting with an incurable disease? Neil, it's an excellent point because we follow every patient for life. And I tell patients when I'm doing a radiofrequency ablation that this has a 90% chance at two years of having successful ablation or even cure at the site, but that we have to screen your entire liver as a precancer condition. And I'll tell each patient, you have a one-third chance of developing new hepatomas elsewhere in your liver in the next two-year window. So... We do have patients that have single tumors and be cured, but that's the minority, and the majority of patients will recur. I think that it's important that we move forward on the research front. And while Nexavar is wonderful to have as the first drug that's available, I think that we're not going to be curing many patients with Nexavar alone in this situation, so we need to keep pushing forth. We have three major approaches for HCC in Pittsburgh. One, this is work of Sidney Finkelstein and Wallace Marsh. We're pursuing the genotyping, meaning either in for de novo tumors or post-transplant for HCC is removed at the time of liver transplant. Can we identify those who are higher at risk for recurrence so we only treat those patients who need it? And the approach there is with genotyping, we're able to now determine when a patient has two or three tumors in the liver, are those intrahepatic metastases because they have the identical DNA fingerprint or genotyping mutations, or are they two or three stage one de novo tumors, which will have different DNA patterns? So that's very important because if a person has intrahepatic metastases, the prognosis is terrible versus someone that has three stage one marbles in their liver, the prognosis is much better, and those patients are less likely to recur and would not need adjuvant therapy. So number 
number one is better identification of DNA biology. Number two would be these randomized clinical trials that we've already talked about using Nexavar in combination with standard treatment approaches right now. And number three, we're looking at better molecular pathophysiology of liver cancer, looking at signal transduction pathways. The Wnt-beta-catenin pathway is very important in addition to p53 pathways. There's probably six to ten genetic mutations that occur for a patient to develop liver cancer. And I think it's important to pursue these pathways because if you identify novel signaling mechanisms, this can lead to development of new targeted approaches rather than just toxic chemotherapies.